Hello and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where sometimes even a fun dude gets burned at the stake. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And we're using fun very loosely here. you struggle to say the word dude and i appreciate it it's you know it's in my vocabulary though like i use dude all the time maybe it's just not in my podcast personality (laughs) you know i'm so serious with my podcast personality your carefully cultivated podcast personality yes i am the skeptic we're gonna do a quick sidebar and um oh dude was a 2018 film with all women on the cover so Okay. Did you just Google dude? Of course. Well, no, because I remember something that I read about Belle Gunnis where, like, she used the word dude, and, like, that was in the way back time, so, like, it's been around for a while, and... Yeah, like, Dude Ranch was a thing. I don't know what the context of that was. Okay, so, according to Oxford, uh, dude, noun, plural noun, dudes, (laughs) means a man or a guy, a stylish, fastidious man which I don't think so. Um, a city dweller, especially one vacationing on a ranch in the Western U.S. Or it can be used as yes. a verb. Did you know that it was a verb? You do it. Nope. It means to dress up elaborately. And their example is, quote, my brother was all duded up in silver and burgundy. I'm glad this has fallen out of the lexicon, at least oh, in this usage. It came from a late 19th century... Word. God, I'm going to get all of these fucking advertisements for Dude Ranches now. It's the entire Google um, results so page. It, it's, it probably was shortened from the word doodle, <clears throat> perhaps an allusion to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Language is fun. Yeah, we did that whole mini on the origin of the word fuck, remember? Oh, yeah. Uh, but that's, well, no. Uh, I can't say that's not entirely <laughs> what's going to come up in the episode. Um... Based on my knowledge of this story, maybe. So today we are talking about the Loudon possessions. We're going back to France, old timey France, to talk about something that I keep referencing and I figured I should probably tell you about so we're all on the same page. We had to eventually do this episode because we talk about this all the fucking time. It's one of my favorite, like, old-timey hysteria possession stories because it's yes. fucking ridiculous. It's wild. So today we're going to learn about Father Urbain Grandier and the possessed nuns of Loudon. And like I said, it's pretty wild. Uh, it's full of sexually repressed nuns, a priest who probably could have been a little more repressed, and a bunch of butt-sucking <laughs> babies who uh, happen to have quite a bit of political power to abuse. And ruined everybody's fun? Um, Were they having fun? They ruined one man's fun. <laughs> one man and, like, some accomplices. Fair enough. So I'm going to start with my sources. Um, it's This is a weirdly hard thing to find, like, w- like uh, encyclopedia information on. I can imagine. So that being said, um, a website called occultworld.com did a really good job of compiling information from the Aldous Huxley book, Devils of Ludon. So, like, good for them. Oh, um, Aldous Huxley wrote a book. Yeah, and it's it slaps. Uh, honestly (laughs) is this the book you read uh i read uh excerpts from it it's 
it's hard to read a, a whole book for an episode. Um, Fair. So there was that. There was Wikipedia. There was Britannica. Um, WisdomDaily.com. Uh, which is a random website that I found, but it had like a very nice kind of summary article. And then I also referenced another book called, this is the the boring one that I don't necessarily recommend as like bedtime reading. I mean, unless you're really trying to fall asleep. That's true. Um, it was called A Case of Witchcraft, The Trial of Urbane Grandier by Robert Rapley. Yeah. I'm falling asleep just listening to the title. Give it a little jazz. Jeez. Uh, when did when did he write this? Uh, Nineteen twenty six. So yeah, nah. Uh, dry. All right. Uh, this episode might get a little saucy. I've kind of toned it down just because that makes me distinctly uncomfortable. But you know, if you're even more of a weenie than I am, heads up. All right. Our story begins in France, technically in fifteen ninety, when a man named Urbain Grandier was born. His really early life doesn't have much to do with the story as a whole, and even if it did, the record-keeping for that sort of thing, as we know, not great. Bad. Real bad. I mean, I'm sure we have, like, the fact that we have, like, a birth date mm-hmm. is pretty good. Well, he was actually uh, from an important family. Big surprise. Ah. Um, at age 14, he was sent to the Jesuit College of Bordeaux, and he spent more than 10 years studying there uh, and took his ordination as a Jesuit novice in 1615. So he would have been 25, which I guess is a good age for a priest. Now that I think about it, like, I don't know when a priest is old enough to become a priest. Like, is it a doctor where they're always, like, younger and older than you'd expect? Or I would say mid-20s is probably still pretty... Maybe late 20s now, because I'm sure, like, at least the seminary students I knew when I was in college, like, they went through, like, a four years of college, and then they went to seminary. Okay. It's almost like a master's degree, essentially. Yeah, that's what least, I, was, you know, I was thinking. Okay. In the Catholic Church. They have a master's degree in Jesus. Okay, so France, at the time, was heading towards a transitional period between the Dark Ages, like, we believe in magic bullshit, and becoming more civilized and informed. Not a lot more informed, but more relatively than the Dark speaking. Ages. Yeah. <laughs> they were burning fewer people at the stake and, like, using stockades a little less, I think. Someday we'll do an episode on Joan of Arc because that story is also buck wild. Oh, yeah. We definitely need to... Let's put her on the list. I will go put her on the list right now. Continue. <laughs> so, people were still very ignorant. Um, And Catholics and Protestants were at each other's throats as per usual. Um, Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church was, yes, the Catholic Church was corrupt as fuck, like selling indulgences, using political power to their advantage, the whole thing, which they've never done again. (laughs) The Catholic Church, no corruption there. No, they're all good now. Well, and the Protestants and the Catholics have been up each other's ass since the beginning of Catholics and Protestants. And through to the modern times like they were like having it out in ireland in the fucking 90s (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say that's actually a much more recent example but like my grandfather on my mother's side was protestant and converted to catholicism to marry my grandmother and like it was a huge deal and he got like basically disowned well like one of the huge jack the ripper theories uh is that the prince who was a Protestant, like, secretly married a Catholic girl and they had a kid and everyone was like, we cannot <gasps> let them find out. Oh, God. So let's murder five sex workers. I 
Yeah, that all tracks. Yeah. Completely yeah, logical. Definitely what happened. We'll also do an episode on Jack the Ripper. I just don't know how insane oh, I'm going to go. No, no. I, no. Vetoing that because the Jack the Ripper people are so crazy. No. It, It'd be like missing Far One One all over again. Well, we'd call it something else, like the mean murder man of Whitechapel or something. <laughs> I'm never calling him Jack the Ripper again. It's just going to be the mean murder man. <laughs> of Whitechapel, please. <laughs> no, I've been uh, on some level obsessed with Jack the Ripper since I was like 14. So I am you one know, of those people. <laughs> so that that's encouraging, maybe. <laughs> I will say, like, we should give all serial killers names like that. I think that would make serial killing a lot less... Uh, Attractive. Son of Sam would have had less power if we had just called him, like, the dumpy shithead of Queens. Dorky gunman? Yeah. Or, like, one eyebrow Bundy. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. So, yeah. I, I, the Catholics and the Protestants were not, having Not out. getting along. Yeah. The Catholics were super corrupt. I'm sure the Protestants had some weird shit going on. I just didn't look into it that much. So, that's the climate where Grandier grew up into a young man who has been described countless times as handsome, which was apparently a very low bar, judging by the artwork I have seen of him. <laughs> I was going to say, like, we have no way of knowing, because obviously photography wasn't a thing, but, like, I'm sure he looked like, I don't know, I, I don't want to name a male celebrity. <laughs> he was played by Oliver Reed in The Devils. Um, I'm going to send you the picture that I see. Uh, like the one drawing of him it's it's hard to put a finger on who he looks like but just know (laughs) oh he's jude law no that's just the young pope sarah (laughs) he he can be two things and this was in that maybe it's the hairline that drawing was in 1627 so he would have been 30 like in his 40s Oh, dear. So along with being handsome, he was also equal parts charming and a real fucking bastard. <laughs> uh, Grandier had a reputation for being somewhat of a uh, ladies' man, despite having become a Catholic Jesuit priest, who are not historically known for being ladies' men unless they're played by Andrew Scott. I was just thinking about Andrew Scott, and now I'm slightly worried that I'm going to be picturing him as Andrew Scott for the rest of this episode. I'll fix it. Picture the priest from Dairy Girls instead, because that's who I was thinking of the whole time. He's also very cute. <laughs> yes, but he's not Andrew Scott, and it's it's a little less weird. Fair. Priests that fuck. Um, those two. Yes, Minnie. So Grandier definitely had some ideas about what priests should and should not be allowed to do, and fuck constantly was one of those things that he thought that he should be allowed to do. Weird. Funny that. Yeah. Uh, He was also incredibly arrogant and took pretty much every opportunity to roast and criticize everyone. (laughs) You're not making me dislike him. No, he's he's fun, but also like, eh, you're still kind of an asshole. Well, he was a man in the 1600s. So, yes. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like who the modern day equivalent would be. But like everyone I am thinking of is just an asshole. (laughs) Robert Downey Jr. in the 90s. That's the vibe. Yes, Hot Mess Express. Yes. But, like, charming. 
Um, so at the age of 27, Grandier was given a post in the troubled village of Loudon, which sits in northwest France. And I say troubled because the town was divided between the Protestant Huguenots who hated the church and the Catholics who did not hate the church, clearly. What a great environment. I'm sure this will not, uh, not cause any problems down the road. Well, it was also the 1600s and very few people were actually happy, I'm pretty sure. So Also true. So Grandier didn't get this post totally on his own merit, or on his own merit at all, if I'm being honest. Um, it Gasp. helped that his uncle was the canon Grandier of uh, Saints, Santes. Anyway, he was a pretty important priest who had some influence over the local Jesuit Jesuits, so he got his nephew the appointment. Do you remember that Pope we talked about who was, like, kicked out of being Pope several times and, like, bought his way back into being Pope? Yes. That it's like I don't that. remember which one it was, but he's a nepotism baby. Oh yeah. So the Jesuits had the right to appoint the parish priest, the parish priest for the Church of Saint Pierre du Marche in Loudon, and in 1617 they chose Grandier and never regretted it. No, uh, they also had the right to name a canon at the Collegiate Church of Saint Croix, uh, which was also in Loudon. So it was like a school, a church okay. school. And he was the head of it. I think canon is just kind of like the French Catholic word for for president or principal. (laughs) So he got some very high appointments in Loudon. And Grandier, with his great mustache and many well-off benefactors, was having a pretty good time. I imagine so. Uh, However, unsurprisingly, being a dick can earn you some enemies. And that's pretty much what Grandier started doing as soon as he finished unpacking his bags. Making enemies? Yes. Or being a dick? Both, Both, probably. In general, the women of the village were fans of his and considered him to be an improvement of his predecessor, who I can only assume was an old, crusty man. (laughs) Hard to not improve. The men found him less charming, presumably because Grandier felt that he could... Pretty much help himself to whichever ladies in town that he felt like, including the married ones. I was going to say, he's fucking all their wives, right? (laughs) Yes. Professionally, he was also doing very well, which annoyed his peers in a very, like, this guy way. (laughs) Uh, He became involved in feuds, especially with the Carmelite and Capuchin monks. Um, She disparaged their relics, uh, which were a source of their income, and cost them a loss of patronage. That's just kind of a dick move. (laughs) Oh, no, he's an asshole. Uh, So his many affairs and general misadventures were also gaining him (laughs) negative attention. But Grange had managed to get in good with the mayor of the town and, as mentioned, still had friends in high places with lots of money. That helps, usually. However, Grange really fucked himself over by betraying one of his best friends, uh, Louis Trincon, the public prosecutor of Loudon. (laughs) Oh, oh no, no, not the law man. As as it was, uh, Tricont had a, a youngish daughter, uh, Philippe. Oh no, no. Who Grandier decided to seduce. <laughs> Grandier. Already a situation that was not a great move. He made it even worse when Philippe became pregnant and Grandier just kind of fucked off with his responsibilities. <laughs> oh, why are you so stupid? Like, obviously, this is going to come back to bite you. Make better choices. So, obviously, the town prosecutor uh, was mad at Grandier's arrogant ass. Yeah. And probably the rest of him. 
Uh, and Trincott happened to know a lot of other local men who were also sick of Grandier's <laughs> shit. <laughs> Somehow, Grandier managed to get himself an even deeper shit when he fell in love and married, secretly, a young lady. Actually, she was 30, so she was very old for the time. Oh, a spinster. Yes, uh, a lady named Madeline de Bru, who is the daughter of a local nobleman. Nobleman? Nobleman. 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 Uh, he persuaded her to marry him, angering her family, and Pierre Manu, I think that's how it's pronounced, uh, who is an advocate of King Louis XIII, who had been trying to win Madeline's hand for years. <laughs> to make a long story short, uh, Pierre tried to start a fight, and a friend he'd brought along for support uh, took it too far and beat Grandier with his cane. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. So that whole spectacle was pretty much the last straw for the local men of Ludon. <laughs> Grandier's enemies complained to the local bis- bishop named Henri-Louis Chastinier de la roche Why did they all have so many names? They're like, French. this gets me about, like, all the French episodes. Like, I, I run into this problem, too, where... It's like, okay, I can do French for, like, two names, but by the time I get to, like, name number five, I've lost the plot and can no longer pronounce French. Yeah, Just pick I, one or two. <laughs> well, Henri-Louis is one word. That's also a problem with the French. <laughs> anyway, uh, so this guy, this bishop, uh, lived outside Paris, and the uh, enemies of Grenier in Ludon let this bishop know that Grandier was out of control, which is not incorrect. Priest gone wild. Well, yeah, he was fucking all the ladies. He was profane, impious. They said he didn't read his breviary, among other crimes. Uh, the last one seems a little petty. A little. He's not doing his assigned reading. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the bishop, who despised Grandier, ordered him to be arrested and imprisoned because the church had that kind of power back then. Mm-hmm. You just do that. Yes. Uh, the case was adjourned, however, and Grandier was given time to clear himself with his other superiors. Instead, accusations of his impropriety were heaped upon him as townsfolk came forward. Oh, man. I can just imagine, like, okay, we're going to give the whole town a day where everybody comes and tells us any problems that they have with this guy, the Grandier guy. And it's just like a line out the door. <laughs> Well, and now I'm going to say two accusations that's going to be like the list I just gave, where it's like one that's pretty bad and one that's like, I don't know if that's necessarily a problem, but go off. (laughs) Um, So he was accused of having sex with women on the floor of his own church, although we don't know if that one was true. uh, And he touched women when talking to them. Now, I assume (laughs) it was just like an arm touch and not (laughs) the alternative. And not just like... Copping a feel every time yeah. he's having just like a basic conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but who I mean, knows? if it's unwelcome, it's not a great thing. But also, I maybe wouldn't burn him at the stake for it. Uh, so, Grandier decided to appear voluntarily before the bishop rather than be humiliated by arrest. But he was arrested anyways and taken to jail <laughs> on November 15th, 1629. Somehow, this would not be his rock bottom. <laughs> <laughs> After two weeks in prison, Grandier petitioned the bishop for his release, claiming that he had repented. The bishop's response was to increase his punishment. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he felt real bad about it. 
On January 3rd, 1630, Grandier was sentenced to fast on bread and water every Friday for three months and was forbidden to perform priestly functions forever in Loudon and for five years in his home diocese of Poitiers. So, like... Okay. I mean, that's... suspended without... Punishment. Yeah. Realizing that he'd fucked up and ruined his career, Grandier announced his intention to appeal the case. The archbishop was, of course, a close friend of... <laughs> one of Grandier's key supporters, Governor de Armagnac, and it seemed likely that Grandier would win the appeal. So Grandier's enemies, in turn, appealed to the Parliament of Paris, claiming he should be tried by the non-secular court, and they agreed, so a trial was set for August. This is just some, like, everyone going behind other people's back, like, bullshit. So, only six years earlier, another priest had been burned at the stake for a lesser degree of what Grandier was doing, meaning that there was precedent for this kind of thing. That's also... I mean, we haven't even gotten to, like, the witchcraft accusations yet, which is wild that they would still just burn him at the stake for, like, being a dick. Yeah. Yeah, I think the priest was burned at the stake just for sleeping with one of the, one of the parishioners. Not even, like, multiple. Just one. Just one. Very right. normal the- religion. The case went in Grandier's favor. Accusations from the townspeople were recanted, and Philippe's father decided to protect what little remained of his daughter's reputation by keeping silent about her illegitimate child fathered by Grandier. The archbishop remained supportive of Grandier. <laughs> so he was reinstated to his duties, but was advised by a friend, his friends to leave town, and he refused, presumably out of spite. What did we, what did we say about choices? <laughs> Bad ones? So this is where the beginning of the end is for Urbain Grandier. And it all started with a horny Ursuline mother superior looking to fill the position of a live-in priest at her convent. And that's not a euphemism. (laughs) The mother superior in question was 25-year-old hunchback named Sister Jeanne d'Agnes. Sorry, the fact that she's a hunchback doesn't really apply to the story, but it is brought up in every single source that I found on her. So, for the sake of historical accuracy... I was gonna say, do we know if she really was, like, a hunchback, or if this was, like, a detail? No, she had an illness when she was younger that caused her to have a hunchback. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that, like, every historical source would, like, mention this just, you know... As color. Um, so, S- Sister Jeanne was born in 1602 to a very wealthy family. Uh, she suffered from tuberculosis as a girl, which left her with said hunchback and a, quote, sour personality. Oh, yeah. Uh, during her later childhood, she became such a pain in the ass that her parents sent her to a different <laughs> nunnery to live with an uh, aunt for three years before she was returned and then sent away again as soon as she came of age and could be accepted at a convent for real. And she was sent to the Ursuline convent in Loudon, to be exact. So here's the thing about convents in medieval times. A lot of, and a lot of the surrounding time periods, they weren't crawling with pious women who wanted to give their life to God. Not exactly. No, No. back in the day, convents were mostly used as uh, parking for women that families didn't want to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) Parking is such a... Cold yet accurate term. (laughs) I mean, it could be because they sucked too much to find a husband, or maybe the family had too many daughters and they couldn't afford to marry them all off. Like, whatever the case, the convent at Loudon was primarily filled with women in their late teens to 30s who had noble families. 
And very few of them actually wanted to be there. Yeah, it's like you got two things to do with your daughters. You marry them off or you send them to a nunnery. So anyways, Sister Jeanne was sent to Loudon because despite some accounts saying she was pretty, aside from the hunchback, uh, her family didn't seem to want to deal with finding someone to marry her. I think it might have been because she was a bitch. Fair. By all accounts, <laughs> a bitch, too. <laughs> there are historical sources backing you up on this. <laughs> I presume. Uh, so she got sent to Ludon, and she continued being a pain in the ass for several years following her arrival until something seemed to shift and Jeanne became um, pious and like mm. made herself indispensable at the convent and the picture of a perfect nun. Yeah, there's an angle. Don't that worry about worries it. me. So the prioress, who was retiring, which I didn't know you could do, uh, decided to recommend Sister Jeanne at, as I said, age 25 as her replacement. And Jeanne retained the position of Mother Superior for all but three years from 1627 until her death in 1665. Damn. In her autobiography, Sister Jeanne gave a much different account than the idea that she had some sort of spiritual awakening. She said that she deliberately made herself indispensable and used ingratiating behavior as a bid for power. Good for her. She also... <laughs> became adept at feigning states of ecstasy and rapture to make herself seem more pious and in tune with the Lord. Emily, this is just making me like her more. She did get a man killed. She's a bitch. <laughs> and she's manipulative. I love it. Having nothing better to do, the nuns passed much of their time gossiping, and at the center of their attention was the handsome priest with a reputation, Urbain Grandier. <sighs> so Sister Jean became infatuated with him and the obsession grew for five years until she had the chance to make a move oh boy yep this is where it really starts to tank uh so when the ursuline's director canon mousson died sister jean wasted no time in inviting grandier to replace him uh he declined saying he was not worthy of the post and he was too busy with his regular job anyways uh sister jean didn't love the response and added herself to the growing list of grandier's enemies I love, like, one minor slight, and he is on her shit list. Mm -hmm. Again, not making me dislike her. <laughs> she then appointed to the vacancy a cleric, Canon Jean Mignon, who was potentially a nephew of Louis Trinquant, and you can see where this is headed. Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. Sister Jean began describing dreams to the other nuns. In some, which is boring shit, and I hate her for it, but... <laughs> Uh, in some, she was visited by the recently deceased canon uh, Moussant, who had returned from purgatory to ask for prayers. Uh, Moussant eventually became Grandier, and the dreams got, for want of a better word, saucier. Uh-oh. She started mm. having sexy dreams. Mm-hmm. Upon hearing about these dreams, the other deeply sexually repressed nuns began yes-anding their mother superior. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the nuns said that they saw shadowy forms of men, including Moussant and Granger, moving around the convent at night uh, from shortly after the time of Moussant's death. Canon Mignon did nothing to discourage any of this behavior and began to reinforce their delusions by characterizing them as incubi sent from Satan. See, what I love about this is, like, you can just totally see how this would... It's just, it's all such normal human behavior. It's like... She starts telling everybody about these, like, crazy dreams, and then everyone wants to, like, all, like, she gets attention for it. Everyone else wants that same attention, so they start, like, making their own dreams. And then people reinforce that by saying it's, like, actually, it's more than just, like, dreams. It's, like, demons. And, like, it just all feeds into each other. 
Well, and it's it's being reinforced by someone with a bone to pick of someone involved in the dreams. Yes. So eventually, whether she was making her own kind of music or if Mignon had nudged her into <laughs> it, uh, Jean swore that she and the others were possessed by two demons, Asmodeus and Zabulon, sent by Hi. Father Grandier via a bouquet of roses thrown over the convent walls. Don't ask me how that works. I don't know. <laughs> Very romantic. <laughs> Everything in the story from here on out is just like, fucking really? <laughs> it's weird. It's all weird shit. That you have to remember that it's like being made up by people with too much time on their hands and who, again, are very repressed. Mignon's next move was to call in exorcists with high standing and who firmly believed that the devil was at work. And their names were Pierre Ranier, the curé of Vignet, and M. Barre, the curé of Saint-Jacques. Which, curé, I think, is like... The head priest. French Catholicism is very different than Roman Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he brought in two uh, exorcists who, like, actually believed that something was wrong. Like, he didn't fill them in on the whole, like... Right, actually, Grandier this is just, angle. like, a whole thing, yeah. I'm sure they'd heard about it, so when they were like, Grandier's haunting these nuns? Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> so the exorcisms were made public, which I should note was not standard practice at all, and it made several people very mad. So they were made public, and the townspeople poured into the convent to witness them. And October 6th, 1632, in his third exorcism, Barre sent Sister Jean into convulsions, in which she rolled on the floor, growled, and howled, and ground her teeth. Seven devils claimed to have, uh, to have a hold of her, and the crowds loved it. Of course they're gonna eat this shit up. It's great. They have nothing better to do. <laughs> I don't put this on the townspeople at all. It's like, look, Real Housewives of New York isn't on TV yet. TV isn't invented yet. What else are they going to do? Read? They can't do that. <laughs> so anyway, two days later, Barre battled Asmodeus, who said he was residing in Sister Jean's belly. Because I guess in this time, like, demons took up residence in specific body parts. Oh, yeah, of course. It's just simple logic, Emily. All right. Well, now it's going to go really off the rails. Uh, it took two exorcists. <laughs> now it's going to go off the rails. It took two exorcists two hours to expel the demon who finally parted after Jean, pinned down to her bed, was given a holy water enema. I'm just going to let everyone sit with that phrase for a minute. Is it worse than the yogurt enemas from the uh, the cereal guy? <laughs> I, I don't like... That we've had to talk about enemas twice on this podcast. At least twice. Did I bring up coffee enemas during the coffee episode? No, thankfully. Yeah, don't Thanks. Google that. Um, okay. So Sister Jean later claimed that she was so confused uh, at the time that she barely knew what was happening to her. Um, and although Mignon and Barre assert assured her that she was infested with demons... Uh, most educated people who witnessed the exorcisms did not believe the nuns were genuinely possessed. And physicians... Uh, believe that their conditions had natural causes. Yeah. Yeah, but that didn't stop uh, other people in the village from believing wholeheartedly that there was a cartload of demon-ridden nuns. Oh, well, of course. So after spending a while in very deep denial, because he was actually innocent of this one, Grandier began to <laughs> panic a little bit. <laughs> oh, this poor guy. Not really. I don't feel that bad for him, but, like, what a mess. <laughs> One of my favorite parts in, like, movies where, like, people accuse someone who's generally a shithead of, like, doing really bad stuff. And he's like, that was not me. 
But I, I didn't actually do that one. I didn't. Like, you can be mad about the other shit, but, like, I actually had nothing to do with that. It's one thing when people are mad at you and you deserve it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he was like, mm, yep, did that. Or at the very least, he took a very shaggy uh, approach to it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so witchcraft and the prosecution of such was still very much a big deal. And Grandier was well aware of what happened to people accused of making pacts with the devil. <laughs> Not good things. Mm-mm. Remember, the church runs everything. <laughs> Trying to get ahead of the situation a little bit, Grandier appealed to the bailiff of Loudon to have the nuns isolated, but the request was ignored. As a last resort, Grandier wrote to the Archbishop of Bordeaux, who sent his uh, personal doctor to examine the nuns, uh, and he found no evidence of possession. Clearly. Um, so the archbishop ended the exorcisms on March 21st, 1633, and ordered the nuns to be confined in their cells. Cells is another word for room. It wasn't like nun jail, although it was kind of like nun jail. <laughs> Man, I just really want to watch The Nun now. It's not a good movie, but, you know, getting those old-timey convent I vibes. was going to say, it's got the vibes. Sometimes, sometimes, even when a movie is bad, you watch it for the vibes. Yeah, why do you think I've seen Alien vs. Predator five times? <laughs> Actually, that Does that movie, movie have vibes? It's a masterpiece. There's an underground ancient temple, there's aliens, there's predators. Okay, those kind of vibes. I get it. Yeah. I won't shame you for it, but I see what you mean. It's a very specific kind of vibes, and they're Emily vibes. I like Paul W.S. Anderson movies because they're usually, like, not quote-unquote good movies, but they're fun, like Event Horizon. Fantastic. Very scary. Where was I? Right. Grand J. Talked to the Archbishop of Bordeaux, who got the exorcism shut down. The nuns were confined to their cells, and that seemed to take care of the issues of possession for a while. Later that year, the hysteria returned in full force, I assume because some people had time to make a plan. <laughs> I was say, people got bored. It, I, this is a combination of, like, people being bored and also people having an agenda and knowing what they have to do. Mm-hmm. To, like, make it believable. Right. So in the fall of uh, 1633, Jean de Martin Labardemont, I'm just going to call him Labardemont from here on out, uh, a relative of Sister Jean's, and also a goon for the very powerful Cardinal Richelieu, got involved. You know, Richelieu from the Three Musketeers? That, that guy. Yeah, that name sounds really familiar. That, that's, a, that's a guy. Okay. Yeah, he was a very powerful cardinal. I mean, cardinals in general are pretty powerful. They're the step below the Pope, because I don't think there's, like, a super cardinal. I mean, yeah, he's called the Pope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Bishop Supreme. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, Richelieu got involved, and along with the help of a Capuchin monk, Father Tranquil, please remember... <laughs> I'm... <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to stop you there for just a minute. Mm. I know we've talked about the Capuchin monks before, but specifically in the mummy episode. So now when you like reference Capuchin monks, I'm literally picturing walking mun mummies. I mean, not, you know, they're like holy men. They're like one of the more devout holy men. Um, yes, but, but also they like mummified people. So like, yes. that's all I can picture now. The, the significance of Father Tranquil being a Capuchin monk in this context is that um, uh, Grandier spent some time roasting the—not physically. Uh, oh, yeah. Emotionally roasting the Capuchins and the Carmelites. I do remember this, yes. They kind of had, you know, a bone to pick. So they had them. beef. Yeah. Yes. 
Well, maybe not, because they're monks, and I don't think monks are allowed to eat animal products. <laughs> Where, wait. Are monks vegan? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well. Now, there was a time, I'll talk about it when I finally do the mini about the butter thing, uh, <laughs> when they weren't allowed uh, to eat yeah, animal products. The uh, only results I'm getting are about, like, Buddhist monks, so I'm not yeah. going to read any farther into that. Depending on whether or not it was a Friday during a holy period, they may or may not have had beef. Otherwise, they were mad at Grunge. Fine. They had fish. (laughs) Okay. Father Tranquil uh, called to Richelieu's attention a a salty uh, satire piece on Richelieu that Grange was supposed to have written in 1618. Um, as well as the reports of the unsuccessful exorcisms and all of the other shit Grandier did. So now Cardinal Richelieu is aware that all of this shit is happening. I assume he does not like it. No, I can't imagine he would. Well, eager to prove his power in the church and in France as a whole, and with a relative, uh, Sister Claire, who is at the convent, the Cardinal appointed Labardemont as head of a commission to arrest and convict Urbain Grandier as a witch. This is months after it started. Like, it stopped. Like, really I think... Just not gonna let it go, then? Uh, well, I don't have, like, documents to back it up. I haven't seen the emails. But my theory is that Sister Jean got bored of not getting attention. This tracks. She wrote a letter to Labardemont, her relative, to tell him about the thing that had gotten her a bunch of attention. And Father Tranquil, whether or not he was, like doing it for the Lord or doing it because family or like some other fast and the furious bullshit. Um, he was like, let me tell my boss about it. So, right. Yeah. It got escalated. And yes, here we so are. The, ex- the exorcisms resumed publicly under Mignon, Barre, Father Tranquil, and a father named G- Gabriel Lactance, a Franciscan monk who had no dog in this fight, but I guess they wanted to get in on it anyways. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Everyone's having fun with it. Let's just go with it. So Grandier was again advised by his remaining friends to leave, but he remained in town. Probably because he'd married Madeline de Brew and like couldn't just pick up and leave with her because they did it in secret. Right. Uh, he was also pretty confident that his innocence would protect him, which it didn't. So Grandier was accused of sorcery and consorting with the devil, and he was thrown into prison at the castle of Angers on November 30th. 1633. And if you didn't think it was stupid before, gonna be stupid now. But, like, stupid in the way that all witch hunts are stupid? (laughs) Oh, well, yes. So, a preliminary, quote, examination was done, and multiple devil's marks were allegedly found on Grandier. Oh, this old chestnut. Yes, so devil's marks, if you were asleep during our witch hunts episode, um... They can be anything from a weird mold, to a birthmark, to a superfluous nipple... But the ones that they supposedly found on Granger were not, quote, visible. Oh, oh, it's those special devil's marks. They were just parts of his body where he allegedly did not feel pain when pricked to the bone with a needle. So either they stabbed him in some places and barely touched others, or they just straight up lied. And it is worth noting that one of the witch's marks was allegedly found on his taint. (laughs) I was going to say penis, but you managed to make it worse. It's worse. It's worse. Uh, which in the book Aldous Huxley called his fundament. 
<laughs> I hate it. <laughs> Sorry to taint the episode with that information, but leave. <laughs> Go. <laughs> I quit the podcast. <laughs> the next slide is also very good. <laughs> uh, Grange's defense was not allowed. <laughs> Just wait. Poor guy. His mother protested with petitions against the illegal hearings, and her petitions were destroyed. (laughs) This isn't like, I'm not laughing at his expense. This is the kind of laughter when just like things get so bad and then they like continue to get bad and there's like nothing you can do but laugh about it. I'm sure Grandier didn't find it funny, but... (laughs) I know the U.S. legal system is fucked and there's a lot of like things that are bad with it, but it's better than this. It, it is an improvement, I will say, on the balance. So Grandier's mommy appealed to the Parliament of Paris. <laughs> I almost said Paris with a French accent like a douchebag. Paris? Yes. Uh, but the king barred the Parliament from becoming involved in the case. <laughs> it's like... In a way, because, like, he wanted it to go through, just like, we're not getting involved in this I think it was a, this is stupid, I'm not getting involved. (laughs) Um, So at the hearings, the nun screamed and screeched at Grandier, claiming his specter roamed the convent at night, seducing them. I bet it does. Yeah. The prosecution produced packs that appeared mysteriously in the nun's cells, or were allegedly vomited up by them. One pact was a piece of paper stained with three drops of blood and containing eight orange seeds. <laughs> another was so a bundle weird. of five straws, and another was a package containing worms, cinders, hair, and nail clippings. <laughs> what? On June 17th, while possessed by Leviathan, Sister Jean vomited up a pact containing, according to her possessing demons... Who lie, incidentally, I don't know why their testimony is being used. <laughs> I love that, like, yeah, they're, well, one, that they don't exist in the testimonies, but also, like, they're the church, and we're like, yeah, sure, we'll believe these demons. Uh, so anyway, this pact that Sister Jean puked up uh, allegedly contained a piece of the heart of a child who had been sacrificed in 1631 at a witch's Sabbath near Orleans. My God, it's a fucking satanic panic. Uh-huh. Uh, the ashes of a Eucharist, and some of Grandier's blood and jizz. (laughs) As a complete sidebar. um, Where do these people come up with these things? They had nothing better to do. Um, I remember being very high the other day and wondering if uh, the the host, like the church host, is gluten-free, because I had a memory from being in school where someone was literally like, but sister blah blah blah, some people are allergic to wheat. What do they do? And this bitch literally said, the Lord will handle it. <laughs> I mean, technically, technically, through transubstantiation, it Sarah. wouldn't be gluten anymore. I'm just saying. Uh, the Vatican says communion wafers known as the host must contain gluten. So you're just fucked. That was in 2017, though. And we all know, know how fast the church works on these things. Completely. So, yeah, she, she allegedly... <laughs> anyway, this large digression about gluten. Continue. Sorry. She allegedly... Vom- Sister Jean allegedly vomited up a child's heart, some ashes of a Eucharist, and then blood and jizz from Grenier. So, like, normal shit. Anyway, Delicious, so they, yes. They produced this at the hearings as proof, where I, I don't think the chain of, like... Uh, 
chain of evidence uh, chain necessarily. Of it, no. It wasn't kept in like a sealed envelope at CSI. There's no like chain of custody in That's, this like yes. bundle of jizz. <sighs> How do you even bundle? No. Okay, so experts continue. Don't to- think about it too hard. <laughs> experts continue to doubt that the possessions were genuine. Obviously. <laughs> yes. But more specific, I know, like, obviously, they're bullshit looking at it from, you know, 2022. But uh, there are, if you remember the possession episode or the exorcism episode, there are some, like, points you have to hit to be, like, considered actually possessed. So most of the nuns failed the test of knowledge of foreign languages not known to them prior to their possession, which is, like, a baseline for real possession. Mm-hmm. Uh, nuns Quote, who did unquote, not kn- real possession. Oh, Yes. Uh, nuns who did not know Latin were conveniently possessed by demons who did not know Latin, which I find to be <laughs> All demons know Latin. Yeah. It's like a very basic demon language. It's the only thing that they were speaking for a while, I'm pretty sure. God spoke Latin, right? <laughs> God probably fucking spoke Hebrew. What am I talking about? Sometimes when these nuns were given commands in Latin or Greek, the nuns had to be coached to respond correctly. For all the trouble they caused, at least the girls in Salem didn't need grown men coaching them on their <laughs> bullshit. The sisters also failed tests for clairvoyance, levitation, and superhuman strength. Right. Uh, in an effort to make up for it, the nuns compensated with contortions, animal noises, and flashing their legs to onlookers like they were fucking <laughs> Gina Davis doing the splits in a league of their own. I love it. Like, we'll growl a bit. And then show her legs. Literally, and then like, Tom Hanks it. pulled Sister Jean aside and was like, you need to give him a show. <laughs> you know how the, the Catholic nun was in a league of their own? So, Oh, yeah. I haven't seen the new series, so <laughs> could be. There were a lot of other red flags that this was a fake possession. This all sounds, like, super basic now, saying it out loud, but... I mean, yes, like, the story in in and of itself is a one big red flag, but, like... Also, like, it is worth pointing out just how deeply bad they were at it. Well, just wait till you hear what these red flags were, because they're less red flags and more like red baseball bats hitting people (laughs) in the face. Red rocket launchers. Sister Agnes said repeatedly that she didn't think she was possessed, but had been convinced by Sister Jean and the Exorcist that she was. (sighs) Jesus Christ, Sister Agnes. On another occasion, during an exorcism, some burning sulfur, I don't know why they had it in in the room, uh, accidentally fell on the lip of Sister Claire, who burst into tears and said that she was ready to believe that she was possessed, as she had been told, but she did not deserve to be treated in this manner. And I'm pretty sure that's (laughs) the same Sister Claire that was related to Cardinal Richelieu. Oh, no. Later, Claire admitted that her possession and the accusations against Grande were all lies that she had been forced to tell by Mignon, Lactance, and the Carmelites. At one point, Sister Agnes <sighs> attempted to escape the convent, but was captured and returned. And now we're going to do a list, because it's a good list. Oh, boy. <laughs> Pierre de la Mensandier. <laughs> Mensandier. God, there's a French person who just, like, puked and didn't know why. <laughs> Anyway, one of Cardinal Richelieu's personal physicians. All these priests have personal physicians. I wonder if they were like general practice. Well, I think most priests were probably pretty like well, like they were well he off. He was a cardinal too, like to begin cardinal. with. Yeah, and then as soon as you get like, because like the people joining the priesthood aren't necessarily like poor holy men. It's usually noblemen who need something to do because they aren't going to inherit. Yeah, especially ones who end up being like cardinals and bishops and shit. 
Um, yeah. Anyway, and I use the word physician very loosely here. Yeah. Because it was 1633. Anyway, so this dude determined exactly where some of the demons resided in the bodies of the possessed nuns. Information that has handily been compiled into the following list. <laughs> Yay, I love lists. Let's go. Sister Jean. Uh, Leviathan in the center of her forehead, Beherit in the stomach, Balam under the second rib on the right side, Iskaron under the last rib on the left. Oh my, my favorite movie. <laughs> under the rib on the left. Sister Agnes de la Motte Barras had uh, Asmodeus under the heart and Beherit in the stomach. And you are going to notice some repeat names because I guess that's how demons roll. Yeah, they can be in more pl- than one place than once, I guess. Anyway, Sister Louise of Jesus. Not kidding. That's the name she chose. Uh, she had Izaz under her heart and Car- Karen, or Caron, <laughs> in the center of her forehead. Sister Claire de Cezilli had Zabulon in her forehead. Oh, Nipotoli, not Zabulon. Yeah, I know. Uh, Nepotoli, Nepotoli in her right arm. <laughs> Sanfine under the second rib on the right. Elemi in one side of her stomach, the enemy of the virgin in her neck. Not even a name, just the enemy Very of the specific. virgin. Varine in the left temple, and conspicuous of the order of the cherubim in the left rib. I would love to know, because I'm sure there's some sort of like, obviously not real logic, but like their, their internal logic of like determining who and where these demons are. Which demon goes in what body part? Yeah, like... I'm sure they're, like, doing some sort of poking or something and saying, oh, yep, that's Baphomet. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we'll do another mini where I give you the names of demons and you have to tell me what their job is. <laughs> I would love that. That sounds like a fun game. Uh, Sister Serafika had a bewitchment of the stomach consisting of a drop of water guarded sometimes by Baruch and other times by Caro. That's just like having hot girl stomach issues. <laughs> Uh, Sister Anne had a magic bayberry leaf in her stomach, guarded by Elemy. <laughs> so specific. Oh, there were some lay people that also had demons. Um, so we had oh. Elizabeth Blanchard had a devil under each armpit, the coal of impurity in her left buttock, and devils under the navel, below the heart, and under the left breast. They gotta get rid of these booby demons. <laughs> <laughs> and these butt demons, actually, the coal of impurity in her butt, that's gotta be awful. <laughs> It's got to make it uncomfortable when you sit. So a lady named Francois had Ganillion in the forebrain, frontal lobe, I guess? Uh, Jabelle throughout the body, Buffetison under the navel, and Dog's Tail of the Order of Archangels in the stomach. These are wild names. I love them so much. The nun's accusations clearly escalated, and Madeline de Brew was actually accused of witchcraft, arrested, and imprisoned. Oh, come on. She didn't do anything. No, she just fell in love with a guy with a mustache. She was a dick. God damn it. Who hasn't? Give her a break. Um, so because of her father's political connection, she was released, rearrested, released again, Christ. and then sent to a different convent. This poor bitch was just living her life, being secret married to a hot dude, and now she has to go live in a fucking convent. I mean, for a woman of her time, probably not the worst outcome. She was in her mid-30s, so she was about ready to die anyways. In her old age. Yes. (laughs) Getting said to a nunnery. Uh, Sister Jean decided to up the drama one day. Why not? 
uh, dressed in only her shirt. She stood for two hours in the rain with a rope around her neck and a candle in her hand in the yard of the nunnery. She then tied herself to a tree, threatening to hang herself, but was talked down by the other sisters, who I'm sure were sick of this shit at that point. Uh, this was witnessed by Labardamont, who was convinced by the exorcist that Sister Jean's actions and the retractions of the other nuns were lies of Satan. Oh, of course. Because why would they lie in the first place? So clearly that means they're lying now. Uh, Sister Jean doubled or tripled down and added a new possessor, Iskaron, the devil of debauchery, to her stable of demon tormentors. Like Pokemon, you gotta collect them all. Yes. In short, even though there was more than enough reason to throw out the case, everyone in power was so committed to taking down Grand J uh, that they kept it going. And also because the case was also being used against the Protestant Huguenots, Huguenots uh, in Huguenots, general, yeah. uh, for all the nuns said that the Huguenots were disciples of Satan. This completely tracks. It's like, oh, also it's this guy that we don't like politically, but also it's the Protestants. They clearly have something to do with it because they're Protestants. Uh, so after the Protestant Reformation, Catholics and Protestants battled each other in possession and exorcism cases, trying to demonstrate who had the greater spiritual authority. And this was a great opportunity to fuck with the Protestants. Yeah. And finally, Father Granger was forced to exorcise the nuns himself since he was the apparent, apparent cause of their sufferings. To test their knowledge of languages previously unknown to them and a sign of sure possession, Grandier spoke in Greek, but the nuns replied that one of the terms of their pact had been to never use Greek. So, this caused Grandier to fail, and the fact that people were clearly plotting against him, but, you know, he couldn't exercise the nuns because the nuns didn't have demons in them. Also, yes. One of the more sensational items from the exorcisms and trial was the alleged written pact between the devil and Grandier. Allegedly okay. stolen from Lucifer's cabinet of agreements by Asmodeus and presented to the court <laughs> as proof of Grandier's complicity. No one questioned the fact that Satan has a fucking infertile filing cabinet. They're just writing fanfiction at this point. <laughs> I have a picture of the pact. Oh my god. Also, if you want infernal filing cabinet as a band name, feel free to take it. It's yours. I Google searched infernal filing cabinet just out of curiosity, and they just gave me orange filing cabinets. <laughs> well, to be fair. That's on brand. Can't read any of, of this, but that's allegedly the pact that Urbane Grenier signed with Satan. Looks real? Sure. Yep. Okay, so supposedly written backward by Grandier in Latin and signed in blood, the pact outlined Grandier's duties to the devil and the benefits he accrued thereby. <laughs> Co-signers were Satan, Beelzebub, Lucifer, Elemi, <laughs> Leviathan, and Astaroth. Satan and Lucifer? And it was notarized by, quote, signature and mark of the chief devil and my lords, the princes of hell. It had to be notarized? <laughs> the devil has notaries? <laughs> the recorder, Balbareth, countersigned the pack. Asmodeus also accommodatingly wrote out a promise to leave one of the nuns as he was possessing, as reported by an earlier exorcist, Father this, Galt. This is so much bureauc bureaucracy for, like, one guy. <laughs> Have you read the screw tape letters? <laughs> it's all red tape in hell. Okay. I guess that tracks. So here is Asmodeus's promise to leave one of the nuns, as reported by Father Galt, one of the exorcists. End quote. I promise that when leaving this creature, I will make a slit below her heart as long as a pin, that this is the 
slit will pierce her shirt, bodice, and cloth, which will be bloody. And tomorrow on the 20th of May at 5 in the afternoon of Saturday, I promise that the demons, Gressil and Amand, will make their opening in the same way, but a little smaller. And I approve the promises made by Leviathan, Behemoth, Behari, and their companions to sign when leaving the register of the church, St. Croix, given 19th of May, 1629. So specific. Yeah, that's the thing with, like, old-timey demonology. It's very specific. Also, I love that they're, like, trusting devils to, like, hold their promises or keep their promises. They're devils. It's a legal document, Sarah. Right, I forgot. So it wasn't all shitty exorcists and political enemies. Uh, Skeptics and defenders of Grenier came forward to protest. On July 2nd, 1634, they were officially silenced, forbidden to speak out against the nuns, the exorcists, or any others assisting in the exorcism. They're speaking too much logic, and we can't have any of that in this trial. pain of fines and physical punishment. (laughs) Christ. In a shocking turn of events, Sister Jean appeared in court with a noose around her neck, threatening to hang herself if she could not recant her previous accusations. Oh my god, this woman. I'm still a fan, because she's like a hot mess express, but that's a lot of drama. She's just like... Tone it down just a little bit, Sister Sean. (laughs) So her efforts were ignored and other defense witnesses were either pressured to keep silent or threatened with arrest as accessory to witches or traitors to the king. On August 18th, 1634. So we've been doing this for like 10 months. He has been in jail for 10 months. Oh boy. And that's like not a nice jail. I'm sure. No, here's the thing. They didn't think that a normal jail could hold him. So he was oh, being God. kept in, I want to say, Labardamont's or Trinquant's attic. <laughs> Christ. Like he's fucking Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. So on August 18, 1634, Granger was convicted and sentenced to be tortured and burned alive at the stake and his ashes scattered to the winds. The sentence also stated that he would be forced to kneel at St. Peter's Church and the Ursuline Convent and ask for forgiveness. A commemorative plaque would be placed in the Ursuline Convent at the cost of 150 livres to be paid out of Grandier's confiscated estate. The sentence was to be carried out immediately. (laughs) That's like a different level of humiliation. It's like, we're going to take some of your money and use it to commemorate... Your execution for witchcraft. Grandier made a last-ditch attempt to approve his innocence in a very moving speech that was met with silence from the judges. However, some spectators were so moved that they burst into tears, forcing the judges to clear the room. I have to imagine his like whole speech was just like, seriously? 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 <laughs> this is just a level of like petty shittery that I can't handle. Uh, Grandier refused last rites from Lactance and Tranquille and made his final prayers. The exorcists insisted that when he said the word God in his prayers, he really meant Satan. (sighs) Exhausting. It's just exhausting. In anticipation of a guilty verdict and execution, about 30,000 people flocked to Ludon to witness the spectacle because we have always been like this. Oh, yes. And I'm sure, like, this has all been, like, in whatever, I guess, maybe not, like, papers, but the gossip and the news and just everybody has heard about it. So it's a big deal. Yeah. And people, like we have said multiple times, were starved for entertainment. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Alright, so on the day of his execution, Grandier's body was shaved, but his fingernails were not ripped out as planned because the surgeon refused to obey the court. Weird place to draw the line, but okay. Lactance and Tranquille exercised the ropes, boards, and mallets of torture just in case the demons decided to interfere. <laughs> the priest was bound, stretched out on the floor, and t- this is going to get, like, kind of gross uh, in, in like, a physical way, not gross in, like, a miscarriage of justice way, but that, too. Both, anyway, but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was tied from his knees to his feet to four oak boards. The outer boards were fixed and the inner boards were movable and wedges were driven between the pairs so that his legs were slowly crushed over the course of about 45 minutes. During the process, Grandier was asked to confess and he refused. And the final hammer blows were delivered by Lactance and Tranquille, who were so horny for a confession that they went and found more wedges to crush Grandier's legs even further. The exorcist declared that the devil had rendered him insensible to pain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for two more hours, they tried to harass Grandier into a confession, but he refused, saying it was morally impossible for him to do so. They finally gave up and sent him to be burned. He was dressed in a shirt soaked in sulfur, and a rope was tied around his neck. He was put into a cart on account of not being able to walk, uh, and was hauled through the streets of Loudon with a procession of judges behind him. At the door of St. Peter's Church, the procession halted, and a Two-pound candle was placed in Grandier's hands. He was taken out of the cart, told to kneel, and beg pardon for his crimes. Grandier could not kneel, on account of the legs again, and fell on Mm -hmm. his face. Oh, jeez. He was lifted and held by one of his literal supporters, Father Grilliot, who prayed with him. Onlookers were ordered not to pray for Grandier, for they would be committing a sin. Which is insane. Yes. At the Ursuline convent, the same thing was repeated, and Grandier was asked to pardon Jean and all the nuns. He said he had never done them any harm and could only pray that God would forgive them for what they had done. Fair. Yeah, I'm fully team Grandier at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Father René Bernier, who had testified against Grandier, came forward to ask for his forgiveness and offered to say a mass for him. (laughs) Great time to realize how badly you fucked up, guys. Like, Yeah. Good job. So the square in which he was to be burned was jammed with spectators eagerly awaiting Grandier's arrival. Have you seen Perfume Story of a Murderer? Have we done this? I have not. I feel like I don't need to, because you've described it to me enough. It's just like the ending scene of that. You're like, that's too many French people in one place. (laughs) Um, So everyone who had a window had rented it out to capacity. More spectators sat on the church's roof, and it said that... Louis Trincon and a number of the other members of the We Hate Grandier Club were sitting in Trincon's drawing room, which overlooked the execution site, drinking and laughing about a job well done. <laughs> yeah, we just launched this huge conspiracy against this one poor man that we just didn't like that much. Like, Grand- Grandier, not a good guy, clearly. But, but like, like, he wasn't like. This is an overreaction. Ugh. <sighs> Okay, so guards had to fight a way through the throng to enter the fifth to enter to reach the fifteen foot stake driven into the ground near the wall of the church, where kindling was stacked around it. Grange was tied to a small iron seat fastened to the stake because he could not stand on his own. He had been promised strangulation by the noose around his neck prior to the start of the fire by the executioner, who was sympathetic but had a job to do. Mm-hmm. Capuchin friars exercised the site, including the wood, straw, and coals that would start the fire, 
and the earth, the air, the victim, the executioners, and the spectators. The exorcisms were done again to prevent the interference of demons uh, to ease Grandier's suffering and pain, as his death was to be as excruciating as possible. Gee, I wonder how else they can mitigate that. Grandier made several attempts to speak, you know, last words and all that, but the friar Mm -hmm. silenced him with douses of holy water and blows to the mouth with an iron crucifix. Christ. Lactance still demanded a confession, but Grandier would not give one. Uh, He asked Lactance for the kiss of peace, customarily granted to the condemned. At first, Lactance refused, but the crowd protested, and so he angrily complied, kissing Grandier's cheek. Grandier said that he would soon meet the judgment of God, and so, eventually, would Lactance. (sighs) And and with that, Lactance lit the fire, followed by Tranquille and another exorcist. Father Archangel. Literally his name. So it's Lactance, Tranquille, and Archangel, lighting the fire, ahead of schedule. The executioner tried to strangle Grandier, but discovered that the noose had been secretly knotted by the Capuchins so that it could not be tightened. The Capuchins! That's a that's a new level of like sabotage. And like the executioner was trying to put the fire out so he could like handle the rest of his fucking job, uh-huh. but the friars followed behind him lighting fires as soon as he could. <laughs> this whole story has like the Benny Hill theme running underneath it. Yeah. Like beginning to end. It's, it's Benny Hill. Chaos at the end. <laughs> so the friars doused some of the flames with holy water to exorcise any remaining demons, and Grandier was left to burn alive. Ugh, poor guy. A large black fly landed on Grandier's face, which the exorcist took as a sign of Beelzebub, the lord of the flies, and not just a fucking nearby fly. <laughs> not the fact that it's, like, the Middle Ages and, like, your shit is in the streets. Grandier's body, as it was being consumed in flames, was also surrounded by a flock of pigeons that were circling the fire. (laughs) Grandier's enemies took this as a sign of demons, while his supporters took it as a much more, like, reasonable sign of the Holy Ghost. I was gonna say, it might be that, uh, you know, you've got a crowd gathered and they're probably, there's probably concessions. I can't imagine there wouldn't be. (laughs) Who wouldn't take advantage of a crowd like that? Popcorn and cake? Yeah. Uh, When the fire burned itself out, the executioner shoveled the ashes to the four cardinal points, north, south, east, west, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. The crowd then surged forward to scavenge any souvenirs they could, including teeth, bits of bone, handfuls of ashes that would be used in charms or spells. The relics of a sorcerer were considered to be quite powerful, but also the people who thought he was innocent would have, you know, relics of a martyr. Oh, and when they were done the crowd dispersed for food and drinks yeah gotta have concessions and now we're gonna wrap up sister jean's story which is somehow even more buck wild (laughs) so after the death of granger the nuns were remorseful and guilt in varying levels but they were subjected to continued exorcisms before crowds because they were such a hit oh yeah (laughs) you gotta go on tour now such shows continued until 1637, when the Duchess d'Agnon, a niece to Cardinal Richelieu, reported the fraud to her uncle, and having satisfied his original aim to demonstrate what a big penis he had and how much power he had in France, uh, Richelieu cut off the performer's salaries and put the convent at peace. Oh, these people. But in December of 1634, four new Jesuit exorcists arrive, including Father Jean-Joseph Serene to whom Jean took an immediate dislike. 
Whenever he, uh, whenever approached by him, she went into fits, howled, stuck out her tongue, and ran away. She laughed and mocked him, and her joke seemed to energize one of the demons, Balam, who urged her to continue and thus undermine the progress made by Serene. The demons also apparently caused Sister Jean to experience a psychosomatic pregnancy. Not that, like, this is like a fragile woman who clearly is dealing with some mental health issues. Jean considered trying to abort it herself with <clears throat> herbs and drugs, but abandoned the idea. She considered cutting it out of her with a knife, Ugh. but could not carry Ugh. out the deed. Iskaron once offered her a, quote, magic plaster that would terminate the pregnancy, but she refused it. A physician, quote-unquote, pronounced her pregnancy to be genuine, but Iskaron, speaking at an exorcism, claimed it was all a deception created by the demons. She threw up a large quantity of blood, and the pregnancy symptoms vanished. Jean and Serene considered this a miracle. I would say I would love a movie of this, like, taking it seriously, like it was a real story. Like, that would be wild. Yeah, it's um, called The Devils by Ken Russell. Oh, yeah. You're right. Don't don't watch it, though. There's a lot I of won't. dicks and boobs in that. It's all titties and hats. <laughs> but like a serious, like, oh, A24 not, not sort of film. Movie. Oh, okay. yeah. So you want um uh the lighthouse guy to do it? Yeah, sure. He'd be good at that. Not Willem Dafoe. Uh, Robert, Robert Eggers. Anyway, so Serene kept trying to get all the devils out of Sister Jean, if not by exorcisms alone, then by spiritual instruction that would, quote, elevate her soul. He offered to take on her demons himself and soon became obsessed. <sighs> Jean continued to... It's just like Pride and Prejudice, but with shitheads. <laughs> uh, Jean continued to revile and resist Serene and then suddenly changed her mind. She decided she wanted to become a saint and increased her prayer time and took on severe austerities like a hair shirt, a bed of boards, wormwood poured into her food, a belt spiked with nails, like all of that uh, Paul Bettany in the I was just going to say, this is some opus day shit. (laughs) Had to come from somewhere. Uh, Surin, who was a great believer in discipline, encouraged her, and Jean became more receptive to Surin, and by summer, 1635, they were meeting privately in the convent's attic. (sighs) this gonna go where i think it's gonna go actually i don't know for sure if that's what they were doing serene had essentially become sister jean's spiritual director which really cheesed off the jesuit authorities (laughs) Uh, in october 1635 he was ordered to return to bordeaux and to be replaced by another exorcist and distressed sister jean fell ill for several days and then asked to be exorcised on november 5th in front of a large crowd serene expelled leviathan from her and was allowed to stay at the convent Oh, that worked out well for everybody, I guess. Yeah, they are deep into this lie at this point. <laughs> I mean, at this point, I'm almost sure, like, she, like, believes it. Like she's Maybe. De- I'm sure, like, at some point, she just deluded herself to the point that it was real to her. Or it wouldn't surprise me, I guess. I'm drawing conclusions. I could but- not find a copy of her 1644 autobiography. <laughs> That's too bad. I would love to read that. Um, So a bloody cross appeared on her forehead after this exorcism and remained for three weeks. Then Balaam announced he was ready to go and would write his name on Jean's left hand when he did so. Jean prayed mightily that the demon would inscribe the name of St. Joseph, not his own. The demon departed on November 29th, leaving Jean marked with the name Joseph. Later, the names of Jesus, Mary, and St. Francis de Sales were added to her arm. The names would fade after a few weeks and then be renewed by Jean's good angel. Iskaron left Jean on January 7th, 1636, and Surin took on Be- Benemoth, uh, 
but uh, 10 months went by with no progress on that. In October, he was replaced by another priest. Benamoth announced that he would not depart without Jean making a pilgrimage to the tomb of St. Francis, accompanied by Serene. So a very odd request from a demon. It's like, hey, take me on this trip. Yeah, until she went on vacation with her boyfriend. (laughs) So uh, Serene came back. He and a priest named Father Thomas accompanied Sister Jeanne on part of her pilgrimage. And then Serene's job with her was done. Jeanne's five-month pilgrimage was a march through France. And in 1638, uh, she visited major cities, including Paris, Lyon, Orleans, Grenoble. She's going on tour. And several of us, yeah. Tens of thousands turned out to see her and yes. her relics, <laughs> the names on her arm, and the stained shirt. In one town, a possessed girl was cured by touching the stained shirt. I'm sure you can see where this is going. Jean had audiences with royalty, including Queen Anne, the wife of Louis XIII, archbishops, and the dying Cardinal Richelieu, who privately knew that this was all bullshit but didn't right. say anything. <laughs> but you gotta play along at this point. Her stained shirt was used as a blanket during the birth of Louis XIV. <laughs> that's, that's a crazy detail. On October 15th, uh, Behemoth kept his end of the deal and departed from Jean, and Serene, uh, Serene uh, returned to Bordeaux. Uh, and after the pilgrimage, Jean returned to the Loudon convent, never to leave it again. She was apparently bored and wanted attention, but now there were no devils and no miracles used to gain the attention. So she fell seriously ill and miraculously recovered. But no one really noticed that miracle. No, that's not nearly as exciting. A few times the demons reappeared to beat her and harass her, and John, however, was more interested in producing heavenly miracles than engaging in fights with demons. You gotta reinvent yourself. Like, you can't just do the old same thing. People get bored. Yes, this is really Sister John's Ziggy Stardust era. <laughs> her Chris Gaines years. Uh <laughs> Anyways, she claimed that her heart split in two and was marked invisibly with the instruments of the passion. Souls in purgatory appeared to her and spoke, and increasingly she developed a relationship with her guardian angel. And her angel began giving advice to visitors, even though a lot of it was weirdly personal and often petty. <laughs> yeah, she, I'm coming back around then, Sister Sean again. Sean began to write her autobiography in 1644. She made little reference to the Granger drama, even though she had confessed her guilt and remorse at framing him with lies. Uh, rather, she saw her life as a spiritual quest in which, she was, in which she had allowed demons to act against her as a consequence of her own defective will. For years, she wrote to Serene, but received no reply until 1657, when he resumed su- serving as her spiritual director until his death in 1655. Uh, Her miracles had ended by 1662, and despite her saintliness, she was still the object of criticism and was called a witch and magician even in the last years of her life. I mean, not inaccurate. All right, and now for the final three paragraphs of this long episode, which are incredibly wild and not unexpected. Sister Jean died in January of 1665. Her head was cut off and placed in a silver and gold reliquary. Oh, all right. Yep. Her stained shirt was already in its own reliquary. These relics were the objects of popular devotion. The convent commissioned an artist to paint a huge image of the expulsion of Behemoth. In the center, Sister Jeanne knelt before Serene, Tranquille, and a Carmelite, 
who is unnamed, uh, with a look of ecstasy on her face. The painting also feature- featured royalty looking on, a radiant St. Joseph, accompanied by the cherubim, <laughs> and three thunderbolts intended for the demons leaving Sister Jean's mouth. <laughs> Christ. Does this painting still survive? Do we have, like, well, a picture of it? The painting hung in the chapel for more than 80 years when a bishop ordered it removed. The nuns mm, hid the painting not. by covering it with another one. In 1772, the convent was closed. The painting, the shirt, and the mummified head were sent into hiding. That is a weird way to phrase it, and disappeared. And that's the last that we saw of uh, Sister Jean. But I'm sure you're asking yourself, what happened to all of the others involved in this whole thing? Uh, Father Tranquil died within five years of Grandier's execution, allegedly driven insane. The fraudulent witch pricker... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> also died after a bout of insanity. Father Barre left Ludon for an exorcism, uh, where he was finally banished from the church for conspiring to accuse a priest of rape on the altar. These one of people. The, yeah, one of the judges who had been skeptical of the possessions and who was denounced by Sister Jean as a sorcerer himself fell into a depression and insanity and died before the end of the winter. And that... I mean, all of that... Was definitely the demons and not the fact that all these people lived in the 17th century. And that's the story of the Ludon possessions, Sister Jean, Urbain Grandier, oh and all the demons within. I hope this makes up for the fact that we did a history episode again. <laughs> I would not count this as a history. Like, yes, it's a history episode. It but, happened, um, but... It's more of a, like, what the fuck episode. Pretty much. That's how I would categorize that one. Because, like, usually with stories about witch hunts, the satanic panic, uh, they make me angrier than anything. But this one was just so It's so over the top. It it has the element of, like, being over the top and stupid and everyone being involved being, like, a shitty person that, like, the West Memphis 3 does not have. Mm-hmm. And also, it took place, like, 400 years ago, so you're much more, like, removed from it and you can make fun of it. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, if you want to see a movie based on it, there's The Devils by Ken Russell, but I will warn you now, it's rated X and made in the 70s, and both of those contribute to it being a little difficult to watch unless you're into that. <laughs> It's it's shot, like, it's definitely got that kind of Italian, like, horror movie look to it, like uh, like an Argento movie, but mm-hmm. it's, like I said, it's titties and hats. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, surprisingly, the research for this didn't drive me crazy. <laughs> I think. Well, time will tell. Yeah, we'll see. But now you're all aware of the story I keep referencing. Yes. So now in the future, when we reference it again, you can just come back right to this episode listen to an hour and a half roughly yeah more or less give or take 15 minutes of bullshit that got cut <laughs> um okay well if you've ever been possessed by conspicuous uh you can tell us on instagram and twitter at afternoonified we're also uh at getafternoonified.com there's afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com if you just want to email us directly um on the website which i've already said you can listen to past episodes. You can buy merch. Um, we made a joke about a bucket hat on an episode, and Avalon says he's waiting for it. So, well, I guess we got to do the bucket hat then. Uh, pet bowls are also an option now. 
Tell you me get more. emails from Redbubble. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can do all that stuff. And uh, we have two full episodes and two minis left. Uh, and then we're going to go one on. mini. Or, oh, Just yeah, one. no, sorry, two mini. Two, two minis coming out, one that we still have to record. Um, and then we're going to take a bit of an extended break well no that makes it sound like we're going away i'm getting married and it's very stressful we're just gonna take a break for like a few months and we'll be back i don't know if we've decided yet when we're coming back but like christmas time ish yeah yeah probably say we're coming back for like a holiday episode maybe yes i definitely want to give you guys a holiday episode even if it's just what us watching um nightmare before christmas uh but we'll make sure you guys get your holiday episode i would never take that away from you but yes uh we'll be off mid-october through probably january so stay tuned to those socials for some sort of announcement all right guys uh we'll, we'll see you next time oh rate subscribe review all of that i do you that has been leaving some nice reviews i appreciate it we love those i love ones that aren't from the for- missing 411 people and it does make <laughs> me more hopeful for the mean murder man of Whitechapel episode <laughs> okay goodbye goodbye we love you For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is as above, so below.